Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and co-CEO of MindBuddyGreen and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please consider giving us a five-star review and comment. And don't forget to visit us at mindbuddygreen.com for your daily dose of wellness and make sure to check out all of our great offerings, including our online classes and trainings. Thanks and enjoy the podcast. Hi, I'm Jason Wacob, founder and CEO of MindBuddyGreen, the best-selling author of Wealth, and your host for the MindBuddyGreen podcast, where I'll be bringing you deep and insightful dialogues with some of the greatest minds in wellness. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review, comment, and share with your friends and family. And don't forget to visit us at MindBuddyGreen.com for your daily dose of wellness. Thanks, and enjoy the podcast. Dr. Ellen Vora is a holistic psychiatrist practicing here in New York City. She graduated from Columbia University Med School, received her BA in English from Yale, and is boarded in both psychiatry and integrative and holistic medicine. And she's also a licensed medical acupuncturist and certified yoga teacher. Dr. Vora takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing the problem at the root, rather than reflexively prescribing medication to suppress symptoms. She specializes in depression, anxiety, insomnia, adult ADHD, bipolar, and digestive issues. In addition to seeing patients, Dr. Vora has a number of incredible articles online here at MindBuddyGreen and video classes on managing anxiety and depression. Ellen, welcome. Thank you. So let's start with why become a psychiatrist in the first place? Let's start, start with the story of Ellen and what led you down this sure. path. Sure. I mean, maybe the answer to that is don't, but I did. You just got out of school. <laughs> it took me 25 years. And yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and yeah, six figures. Yeah. So um, for me, I think my story is probably the least interesting part of my content, but I think that I was one of those people that was into biology and I was into the brain and I was into the humanities at the same time but uh, didn't know what to do with my life, so found myself in medical school. And everyone was like, no, you kind of love it. And I was like, no, maybe you just have to get a good score on the MCAT and you can still get in. (laughs) Well, they find out that I don't love it. (laughs) And so they didn't, no, I got in. And I was in med school and I was, it was a funky fit for me from the outset. I think I was about a week into med school and I was scheduling a meeting with the dean to say like, hi, you're very nice, but I'm gonna drop out. (laughs) um, But they are so clever about these things. They make a lot of hoops for you to jump through so you can properly drop out of med school. And I'm not really one to fall through. It's just like dropping like cable or Equinox. Yes, exactly. It's like, okay, you have to wait on hold with Time Warner (laughs) and then eventually they show up, but it's a, you know. So same idea. And uh, I did some of the hoops, but I really lacked follow through and then, then second semester came around, the weather got nicer, I got a boyfriend, it's pathetic stuff like that, but I was just like, nah, I guess, I guess I'm okay for now, and just kept with it, and a creature of inertia, I made it through med school, and then when you're choosing your specialty, I had one concern about psychiatry, I was always drawn to it because um, I was so out of my element in the hospital setting, like it's I don't think I have the physical dexterity to be doing surgery, drawing blood. And I always felt like other people really prided themselves on sure. doing these procedures. And I was just like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. <laughs> and so, um, But I uh, 
I was drawn to psychiatry. I liked the idea of just having an, an hour to sit with somebody and talk. But I was concerned because there was this cliche idea of your kids are going to be messed up if you're a psychiatrist. <laughs> so I talked to my friend Yoni and I was like, I want to do psychiatry, but I'm worried my kids are going to be messed up. He's like, Ellen, don't worry. Just the very fact that you're considering psychiatry means your kids will be messed up. So at this point, you know, do whatever specialty you want to do. So at that point, I was convinced and went into it. And um, it was the right choice for me, for sure. But holy heck, are we in a weird place with conventional medicine right now? Sure. So. Yeah, with segues to my next question. So you, you practice holistic psychiatry. So you're a holistic mm -hmm. psychiatrist. What exactly does that mean and how did that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I copied a, a colleague of mine. There are all these terms you can use. You can say integrative psychiatrist. That one usually is a little more palatable to people. They have an idea in their mind of what that means. There's functional psychiatry, which nobody knows what that means, except for the mind-body-green community. Well, psychiatry that works, it's functional. Yeah, right, like yeah. The implication of dysfunctional yes. psychiatry. Um, and then I went with holistic, because it is true. It's, too, it's a little more hippy-dippy sounding than I want for the brand, but it is true that I'm really taking the whole person into consideration. I was trained to think of the body so fragmented it's like you know you have your brain in your skull and that's what we treat in psychiatry and we never think about the kidney or the liver or your arm and we don't think about how your relationships are how you're sleeping what you're eating whether or not you exercise what time you go to bed um, some good psychiatrists are taking some of this into consideration but for the most part we're just sort of like these like skull focusing doctors and just in your head and that's it yeah and and the chemical soup in there so i'm really taking the whole picture into consideration everything from what happens when you first wake up in the morning to you know the quality of your sleep at night and and many different dimensions of your life and not just reflexively prescribing medication, which is what I was trained to do. Yeah. So how do you how do you make that distinction when when you're meeting with someone? You know, you're looking, you're listening, you're taking notes, and at some point you you say, okay, this is lifestyle or diet related, sleep related, what have you, or and that's required, mm -hmm. or medication is required, and how mm -hmm. do you? Think yeah. about that. Yeah. So I'm not the most dogmatic holistic psychiatrist. There's certainly some psychiatrists who are like, I will never start someone on medications. Um, and if somebody's on medication, they need to be interested in getting off medication or else, you know, or else, you know, sure. that's the only right path. I'm not that dogmatic. Um, well, sometimes you need it. Sometimes there are people who do have chemical, like, th there are. Those, but but it's it's nuanced. All this is this is like extraordinarily nuanced. And how do you? It's extraordinarily nuanced. To me, the thing that I'm most inclined to say you need medication is psychosis. You know, if somebody is schizophrenic. Um, to me, I would have loved to take a holistic approach to that, but it would have had to happen like 15 or 20 years ago. So I think sometimes we're at a foregone conclusion in terms of diet and lifestyle's ability to help. I don't think that's true of all psychosis. I have some patients with psychosis. They're actually, I have one woman who's recently off meds and, and thriving, wow. but that's the exception. And for the most part, I have really floundered and not been able to be effective with diet and lifestyle interventions in those cases. When it comes to depression, anxiety, even many cases of bipolar, what I've learned is a lot more than we realize. You can take alternative approaches and someone can do really quite well. It, people have to be pretty disciplined. 
So you can't just say, oh, you're bipolar. You know what? I'm a holistic psychiatrist. So that means you can get off of meds now that you're saying Yeah, it's like you can't say, like, here's some kale and avocados and you're good to go. Yeah, not not, at all. Yeah. Yeah. I've had bipolar patients that are like, now I'm seeing you. So I'm getting off of these meds, but I'm still going to go on cocaine benders and I'm still going to drink and eat pancakes. And and then, you know, they're just a mess, really. Their their mood is all over the place. And so if you want to sign up for this approach, it's... I mean, they say it's more difficult than just taking a pill. It's much more difficult than just taking a pill. For my bipolar patients who want to get off meds, we're talking a really disciplined lifestyle, good sleep hygiene, pretty strict diet, and a lot of supplements to keep them stable. Sure. And if you think about it too, as you talk about like mental health, like when, you, when you're thinking like disciplined lifestyle, like that gets you right in an area where you're struggling with. And that's, exactly. so it's very hard to do. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about a little, a little bit. You have a four pillar approach. Can you explain like what that is. Yeah, I, yeah, I've simplified it to four pillars, but in reality, it's like a twenty pillar approach. But <laughs> that's overwhelming for people to hear. So let's pretend I like four it's four. Pillars. Yeah. So um, I'll always uh, like the saying: it starts with food. Um, I, I've learned a lot from Whole Thirty. I've learned a lot from my colleague Kelly Brogan. I do think the keys to the kingdom is food. You start there, and um, and. It, it's interesting because I have now a lot of patients who come to me and they're already eating a so-called clean diet, but usually there's still some pretty fruitful troubleshooting that can happen around diet. So I've found that my patients that are um, maybe even eating kind of a paleo diet, most of them probably need to introduce more vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, my patients are eating a vegan diet. Sometimes the necessary intervention is actually some inclusion of animal food, which is a whole complicated thing that we sure. could get or into. Or eating less tofu. Or less tofu, yeah. Um, or fake food. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Kind of convenience vegan foods that can be pretty franken-foody. Um, and so it starts with food. We start there. We figure out what's inflaming their body. What are they missing? What micronutrients are they missing? Because the brain, it really is just a physical, you know, it's a flesh, it's, it's organ, and it needs raw ingredients. It needs building blocks to function properly. And our diet is a wasteland, and it's actually hard to I think of it like a scavenger hunt. It's like go around all of you know go around your day and check all of these nutritional boxes you need zinc you need magnesium you need all the b vitamins you need also the macronutrients protein and fat and carbohydrate and kind of go out there and good luck and even for someone like me i do this i live and sleep and breathe this it's still hard to do a perfect nutritional scavenger hunt on any given day sure so my patients who are you know there's resources and there's time and there's convenience and all these issues that get in the way of eating well And so if some of the calories are not serving you, if they're empty calories, you can imagine a lot of people are walking around with nutrient deficiencies. So we replete that, we get off the inflammatory foods, which is tough, um, but you can be motivated when it's your mental health at stake. And then after food, I look at sleep. I think sleep is such good medicine. And I like treating it because it's eminently changeable. So many people, are just like, I don't sleep well, so I guess I need Ambien. And we have so much that we can do before Ambien. And a lot of it is, it's kind of like tricky hacks that people haven't thought to do. Um, it's increasingly in the conversation, but I like people to get the phone out of the bedroom and I like them to go to bed earlier so they don't get overtired, which we as parents know this yeah. concept. But uh, before- I'm listening very intently at the moment. <laughs> yeah, before having a kid, I didn't know about this concept. I was like, eight hours of sleep is, you know, it doesn't matter what interval, it's all the same. So I would go to bed at 2 a.m. and wake up at 10 a.m. and thought I won the game, you know? <laughs> but really, um, if I go to bed at 10 p.m. and wake up at 6 
6 a.m., that's much better quality sleep for me because you can't really trick the body out of the phases of the sun and the moon. It knows and it wants to be in sync with that. So going to bed earlier helps a lot of people fall asleep more easily and sleep more deeply because they're no longer fighting against a stress response that's happening in their body. So there's food, then there's sleep. I want people to move their body some amount, but I'm very realistic about it. I think it's true that more exercise is awesome. You know, if somebody has a really good exercise regimen and they're doing something high intensity interval training or something like that, I think that's great. I treat New Yorkers and I'm like, this is not my first time at the rodeo. I've just treated so many people and they show up and they're like, yeah, no, it's not going to happen. And so um, I like to tell people to lower their standards for exercise because instead what you see is this all or nothing thing. January 1st, you hire, um, you join the gym, you get a personal trainer package and you're like all in until like January 13th and then it just goes to nothing for months. And so... Um, making it more convenient, making it free, something you do in your living room for five or ten minutes in the evening. I think that's... I'm a huge fan of that. My yeah. favorite line, which I repeat often, is the best exercise is the one you actually do. Exactly. And I'm a huge believer in like five minutes, ten minutes. Like exactly. I, I just can't do a 90-minute yoga. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. It'll never happen. It'll happen once a month. It's the same idea with like the reason we take more pictures these days is that it's in our phone, you know? It's like yeah. not because we all suddenly own fancy cameras and carry them around <laughs> with us, right? You need the camera that's in your phone. You need the exercise that's in your living room that you actually don't mind doing for a couple of minutes at the end of the day. That's all I can manage at this point. I used to be like a hardcore yogi, and it was like a sure. two-hour door-to-door energetic. Yeah, you get in the subway, you get to the oh, class. God. Matt, you go back in the subway, then it's like two, two and a half hours. Walking home with wet hair in 15 degree weather. Yeah, yeah no, it's not happening anymore in my life. So um, so now I'll do five minutes of Pilates in my living room, listening to good music, and that's it. And it's not perfect, but it's so much better than nothing. And so a lot of my patients, I just get them to start doing that. Um, and then the last piece, let's call it stress management but i that, that term now like it's just we're so eye roll like it's falling on dead ears we all hear it, like yeah yeah i need to manage stress but even hearing like being told to do that can be a bit stressful i like it though so i like that you purposely use the word management and mm-hmm. not reduction mm-hmm. because i don't think you can't reduce stress Mm-mm. like nor is that the goal one yeah. of my favorite like your problems don't go away they just change like you can't reduce stress but you can manage it Yeah, you can perceive it differently. And I think you can get strategic about what kind of stresses you allow in your life, like different kinds of stresses. When I was in med school, practicing in a way that was in residency, out of alignment with my beliefs, and I had no locus of control, I had no autonomy, I didn't control my hours, like that was toxic stress for me. I felt like all the victim mentality that was all going on for me, and I was just like, felt like a flotsam and jetsam being carried through this thing that I, I wasn't in alignment with. Now I have plenty of stress in my life, but I choose it and I bring it in and it's all kind of you stress. It's good stress. It's like I'm very engaged in what I'm doing in my day-to-day life and the stakes can be high. It can be extremely mentally challenging, but I I feel engaged like I am on my path doing what I'm here to do. So um, there's different kinds of stress and your perception of it changes. Stress management to me also means doing less. I think that's a big thing. Like we are all... Um, there is that does, addicted does to busy. Thing that help thing as I point to my iPhone. Points to, we all know he's pointing to his iPhone. Yeah, so that thing, it's gross, right? Like we are never, ever off. And I think about um, 
like it, I'm picturing in I'm romanticizing a time that wasn't all that romantic, but there used to be an era where someone would go to work nine to five, say, and then go home, and there was no way to bring your work home in quite mm-hmm. the way that we do these days. Um, these days, we're all a little bit half on all the time. You can be at dinner with your friends, and then your phone buzzes, and you half think maybe it was an important work email. And then you open your phone, and it, it was or it wasn't. It doesn't matter. You're kind of like your body has tensed at that point. Your mind is not relaxing. You're just sort of like half on, and it just blurs all the lines. And and, and I think like we just never get the break. Um, and so doing less to me means not reflexively saying yes to every promotion, not reflexively saying yes to every social engagement, have, kind of having a true yes or a true no and being comfortable disappointing people and saying sure. no so that you actually have some boundaries. And sometimes you're literally just doing nothing, not looking at the phone, nothing, but nothing. Well, it's, you, you mentioned going out to dinner and I finally, I'm 43, so I, I like just... I do fondly remember times of going out to eat with friends after college. Like we sort of had phones, but no one was texting mm-hmm. then. And like there was the what I call the space in between, like ordering and and receiving mm-hmm. your drink or your food, where people talk. Like there was no phone. Mm-hmm. Like or or even going out to like a bar by yourself to eat. You know, sitting at the bar. Like there was the space in between, which yeah. was like you ordered, you talked to people, and yeah. then then like. The, the food or the drink came. Yes. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's no space in between. You go straight to the phone. We all do it. Like we end up doing it, you know, yeah. just like yeah. the way it is. But I don't do it, um, but I am sitting there alone just staring at the table. <laughs> Everybody like, else is looking at their phone. Yeah, I think that, um, well, sometimes I'm kind of a jerk about it and I'm, I'll call people out. I'll say, can you like put the freaking phone away? You do that at a restaurant? Um, I'll do it at a restaurant. Oh, wow. It depends on the friends. And then, okay. you, and then you select your friends and you find the ones that are also the jerks who are like, put your phone away. Sure. Um, well, I don't do that. When, I, when we're out with friends with dining, I want to make it clear we don't do that. But like you see people go out to dinner yeah. and it's like all of them, like kid, like all at once. Just like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The millennial. <laughs> so yeah, we have, I, I could go into so many examples, but I completely agree. Um, and we're, it's, it's awesome, the phone, right? It's such an incredible tool and I get a lot out of the phone but the important thing is that you drive the ship like you're the driver you're using it as a tool to serve you and there's a very subtle threshold when you go past that and you just are being driven by it you know it's very ingeniously designed to be one more addiction and um, within that there's all these micro addictions within the phone but the phone itself is a macro addiction and so I think it starts to drive you and you know when it's driving you because you put it down. You actually have no idea how much time just passed, but somebody around you might know. A lot of time just passed, and you feel icky. You feel bleary-eyed, and you're just sort of like, Ugh, you almost need to shake it off. You can sure. see it very crisply with toddlers. You can you can kind of learn about all the things that are addictive because toddlers are so sensitive yeah. to this. Our 19-month-old Ellie like goes through the phone all the time, and, and like we yeah. sometimes when we travel, it's like okay, let's watch a video. Uh-huh. We just do it for mm-hmm. the sake of everyone around Survival. us. Survival. Yeah. yeah but it's just crazy how she just goes right to and we didn't purposely put it in front of her at all yeah well she sees us and these little people just want to grow up and to be like the grown-ups and they're like well there must be something about being a grown-up that involves staring at this little box unfortunately that's true for her parents (laughs) Um, it's very clear that's an addiction when you take it away from the toddler because then it induces a meltdown and they're like a little junkie withdrawing Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think that it's it's not like you can just 
I use, you know, like you, you can't say it's all bad, but sure. you actually, I just want to empower people to be conscious and it's hard to be. I also get sucked in. Like it's super hard to be conscious about the phone. It's so good at addicting us. But the more you can have kind of, I like the book, How to Break Up With Your Phone, like building in natural stops, building in ways for you to actually recognize like, whoa, I just got sucked into Instagram for a really long time. I'm going to close my phone. I'm going to shake it off. And then I'm going to proceed to be alive and awake in the physical world for a little while. So one of the things you mentioned is inflammation. Mm -hmm. So talk about inflammation and the link to depression and Mm -hmm. brain mental health. Yeah, I think I first learned about this through Kelly Brogan. I've learned a lot from her work. Um, You take a very, you take a softer line than she takes though, where where she's like no medication, never. God bless her, yeah, no, she's got, she's got cojones. (laughs) Yes, well, a lot of people, it's controversial. I don't, you know, look, I've, I I know people who've committed suicide and Mm -hmm. a lot of people have, and there's for some people who are, it's, medication is mm-hmm. it's a bridge it's what's necessary and it's yeah. It's, it's yeah tough <laughs> i mean we could go real controversial right now and and i do share with kelly the view that often with suicide medications actually play a role yeah um, they can that there's there's actually science there too but it, it's uh it, it's something it, it it's a tough one and, yes. and, and it, it's very look i one of the things we talk about here a lot is like, look, Western's not perfect, Eastern's not perfect, mm-hmm. but it's the combination of both, which is very clearly the, the future of medicine. Mm-hmm. And yeah. sometimes you need both and they're imperfect and we're learning and it's early and... Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. There's like, there's such a, in my husband's Indian and, and there's a word, I think I'm going to pronounce it completely wrong, but Vivek, it's a name, discern, discernment. And I think it's all discernment. Like, you know, we kind of know if you were in a car accident, yay, Western medicine. Yeah. Um, if you have digestive issues and fatigue, like don't waste your time or your money with Western medicine. It's not really going to help. Um, but you can get good... the technology in the labs that give you the information yep. to yep. then take a yeah. holistic approach. Yeah, they go see your naturopath or your Chinese yeah. medicine practitioner or some kind of healer that's going to take a more holistic view. But then even within this, like take mental health, um, it's great to have the Both, east and the yeah, west and yeah. to always be moment to moment discerning what is needed in this moment with suicide i mean it's the trickiest most sure. tragic part of what i do and i think that um what i've noticed is that medications even when done right um can make people sometimes a bit brittle or fragile and they can even create a kind of impulsive numb um it's a very lethal combination there's like an agitation irritability impulsivity numbness that I think is very dangerous and um, I've seen patients it's particularly in my experience in withdrawal though some of the data points to also in the ramp up period as someone's going on medication there can be new suicidal thoughts I see it most of all when people are getting off of medication you'll take someone who has never had a suicidal thought in their life not before meds not on meds but in that withdrawal it's like they are feeling the essence of um, discomfort and despair and there is something about psychiatric medication withdrawal that creates that experience. And you're looking at the world through that lens. And I think it's such a fragile period. Sure. Um, so, yeah. There's a great, we had the Cher's eyes on yeah, here. And they, they had a great line where like medication's a bridge. And, I like, mm-hmm. and like, mm-hmm. 
I like that. I think for a lot of people, that's a good way to think about it, where it's a bridge to get you from A to B, but there's work that has to happen in between. Whatever we're talking about, whether it's brain health, mental health, like sometimes it's a bridge. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's a bridge. It can be hard to walk off the bridge is one consideration. Yeah, absolutely. But like going by the inflammation, the connection, like talk about like why is it like inflammation? Like we talk about that a lot of mind, buddy, green inflammation, sort of like the way something we talk a lot about so let's talk about the connection to to the brain and mental health yeah so we're all like children of the 90s somewhat and we were taught there was a great commercial i think it was a zoloft commercial and it had this little bubble and it's like i have i'm a serotonin molecule and you know whatever it is this brain has a chemical imbalance but now you are lucky to live in the united states in the 1990s we have the cure for that chemical imbalance we have these ssris these medications that correct your chemical imbalance And I didn't know to even question this paradigm one bit. Like I was like, oh, they figured it out. Depression is a serotonin imbalance in the brain and therefore you need this medication. Um, And maybe it was through a combination of seeing patient after patient not really feeling all that corrected after they're taking what's supposedly correcting their imbalance. You know, people not always thriving on SSRIs. And then just reading the literature and learning about what's called the cytokine hypothesis or the inflammatory hypothesis of depression. And what it basically shows is that if someone's inflamed, um, inflammation is affecting the whole body systemically, and the brain is part of the body. So it's still affecting the brain. We have immune cells in the brain. It can feel the impact of inflammation. And for some people, that inflammation in the brain manifests as mood symptoms. For some people, it's anxiety. For some people, it's bipolar, ADHD. For some people, schizophrenia. And so, um, and I really love when things kind of elegantly make sense. And the theory here is that the the human body doesn't really have an, an ancestral or evolutionary model for this kind of chronic modern inflammation. Like if Doritos are making us inflamed and we eat a Dorito every day, every day, we're just chronically inflamed. We have a model of inflammation that's based on infectious disease. So like say you ate something funny back on the proverbial savanna and your body's inflamed, it has a bug, and your immune system goes into overdrive and tries to kill off this bug. And meanwhile, you feel really lousy. You want to retreat from the tribe because you don't want to infect somebody else. You want to go into your cave. You don't really feel like eating. You don't really have a libido. You just want to rest and kind of despair a little bit and just lay low until your immune system has fought off this bug and you feel better. And that model works. It feels very similar to depression, what that looks like, basically having the flu or having an intense infection. And it used to be okay because our immune system is an incredible race car that can kill off those infections that we were exposed to. Modern day, it's not a bug. And our immune system is terrible at fighting off Doritos. And and then we get a Dorito bug again the next day and then the day after that. So we're just in this weird state where we're inflaming our bodies, but our immune system is not actually designed to address this kind of infection. And so we're just chronically inflamed and the immune system, I think, gets very creative and thinks, okay, my system isn't working here. Should I try something else? I think Amy Myers calls that going rogue. (sighs) Then you start to see autoimmune attack. And I I think that this is part of what's happening now. And a lot of people, it's playing a role in their depression. So how do you think about, as we talk about food, uh, anti-inflammatory and inflammatory foods, if you want to start maybe with the 
the, the good ones and move to the bad ones. <laughs> good ones, yeah. I mean, there's so many, but it, in a way, I almost am loath to be like, eat these three foods because those are the most powerful antioxidants. That's what everyone loves. Okay, sure. Turmeric, <laughs> ginger, black pepper, you know, got it. Okay, those are easy. Those, They're are, all, good, those yeah. are all vegan, too. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> I think Mind Body Green always wants me to be a little more vegan. No, I, I want you to be true, whatever you believe. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm with Mark Hyman on the vegan camp. Okay. But, um, but I think that, which I used to watch that video, I didn't realize it was at Revitalize. Revitalize in yeah. 2014. Yeah, so yeah. monumental moment. So uh, I think that um, in a way, it's like you don't even need to hear me list these things. Just go out there and eat the real foods that so exist. Turmeric, They're all anti-inflammatory. Let's just give me some. Turmeric, <laughs> ginger. Turmeric, ginger, and black pepper, especially there's black a synergy pepper. when you combine turmeric and black pepper and apply heat, you know, don't just eat it raw. Um, that's particularly anti-inflammatory. Um, name any brightly avocados. colored vegetable. Avocados, avocados are so fabulous. Walter Longo was on here and did not like avocados, which was <laughs> like right. it was like Santa Claus like t telling <laughs> yeah. telling telling the whole audience that Santa Claus does not exist. You're just trying to like get ruffle the feathers of everyone because it's like <laughs> the only thing we all agree on. Right? It's like come on, this is the only everyone loves avocados. <laughs> Politicians on both sides of the aisle, yeah, everybody. You um, heal the world. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it'd be the, the the hot thing to do right now would be to point out like, well, maybe not. Not avocados, but um, I do think avocados are anti-inflammatory. Beets, you know, but darkly pigmented vegetables, and sure. it's not like even you need a list of ten. It's just you actually want to try to eat a little bit of all of them. Like yep. whatever's growing near you, eat those ones. Like that's what you want to do. And they're the the more you can get it at the farmers market where it's local and it's fresh, and it's like actual real love labor agrarian practices and not big agribusiness. That's going to be your anti-inflammatory. Where, where do you diet. come out on like the FODMAP? Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, <laughs> listing for people what FODMAP stands for: fructo, oligosaccharide, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. Maybe something like is that. Like, I just always go with the FODMAP. Yeah, is about as hard <laughs> as it is to follow a FODMAP diet. It's kind of impossible. Right? And so, I think that um, the tricky thing about the FODMAP diet, I think the conventional doctors love it. They're like, oh, okay, of course, the, all this gluten-free craze was just rubbish, and it's actually the FODMAP diet for IBS. And it's like, okay, guys. I'll slow down. Um, some of the FODMAPs are challenging to digest. You know, so if you have a compromised digestive system, then yes, these soluble, insoluble pr uh, fibers are going to be really difficult to digest, and you're going to have symptoms like bloating and gas, sure. um, and it's just going to fuel the fire of the inflammation in your gut. Some of the FODMAPs are not inherently bad foods, like you know artichoke hearts and broccoli. And I think that we throw the baby out with the bathwater a bit. Mm -hmm. Somebody wants to get really quick results for IBS symptoms, and you can manage to read all of the instructions in the FODMAP manual, then go for it. You will get quick, quick symptom relief just by avoiding all these foods that are difficult to digest. I don't think of it as fundamentally addressing the issue, sure. um, and I don't think it's sustainable. I think it's really tough to go through your life um, avoiding all of those. Well, it's like I remember this is like, God, eight years ago. This is like when I first met Frank Lippman. Um, and you know he's big on gluten free, and I'm like, oh, fantastic! Like, so I can just eat chips and guac like all day. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, no! What are you doing? Uh, I it's love like it. corn, GMO. I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, now we've got siete chips, and still I like good chips every once in a while. But we all should have our doctors talk with a South African accent, <laughs> yell at us, and curse at us. It's so good. He he gets the point across so well. 
Um, yeah, it's. I think that, and everybody's different. Like the more seasoned I get as a practitioner, just the more wrong I realize what I was saying ten years ago was. Like it's just, it's always going to be individual. Well, well, do you think about that too? Like what we're talking about today, mm-hmm, and, and mm-hmm. what that's going to look. Mm-hmm. Well, before we go there, like what what mm-hmm. are the other like? Okay, we, we got the the good anti-inflammatory. What are some of the inflammatory generalizations here? Um, Sugar, well, I know, is a big one. Yeah, I bet the Mind Body Green audience probably not heard of this one. It's called gluten. And it's, <laughs> I think <laughs> super under the radar right now, but it's coming. You'll hear. Um, the tricky, I mean, gluten, obviously. I think there's even something in that word, like gluten, that like makes people particularly want to hate on it. And, um, and It's a very good tool that we use to feed our 19-month-old when we're out to eat, and she uh, is, is not really happy. We'll go to the gluten and the bread to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Slow her down yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. The hanger storm, keep it at bay. Um, yeah, I think that um, I like what Michael Pollan uh, has to say about, like, you know, not if there's like a long fermented organic sourdough, there are definitely people in this population, probably people of um, Northern, Northern European descent in particular, who can tolerate that. And you can listen to your body and know, like, my body seems to be okay with that. It even maybe integrates and assimilates some nutrients from it. For a lot of us, we're not tolerating. It. And I think we're in a perfect storm right now, particularly in places like the U.S., but of course we've spread a lot of our agricultural practices mm-hmm. elsewhere, so we've also spread our digestive dysfunction. But I think our perfect storm, it relates to increased C-section rates and decreased breastfeeding and antibiotic use, and then of course Roundup or glyphosate. Um, and so I think this has all conspired to make us have pretty compromised digestive tracts, and then you introduce this really kind of unrecognizable gluten protein coated in glyphosate and a lot of people get symptoms and not everyone's celiac but a lot of people are sensitive to it and um, I don't know I think that people get kind of I think I have so many patients who they really do feel better off of gluten. Yeah. And then their primary care doctor is like, but you don't have celiac. Well, that's the line that I'll quote Frank again and I'll stop quoting him. One of my favorite lines from him is I've never had someone say they felt worse. Yeah. After yeah. most people say, like, he's never had someone say, I feel worse after maybe you feel angry, more yeah, angry right. or disappointed. But like, a- here's the complexity I see. So for some people where it's a no-brainer, like they truly are coming to me like, I'm depressed or I'm anxious, but also I have digestive symptoms. I get them off gluten and they're like, thank you. What, you know, I wish I'd tried that earlier. For a lot of people, it's like, well, you know, I, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, but my digestion's okay. And I really like that I'm a, you know, kind of a versatile eater. And I like not being that guy at a restaurant that's like, mm, you know, I need something gluten-free and dairy-free. And yep. do you use industrial vegetable oils? <laughs> um, and so for those patients, I'm very hesitant sure. to actually bring them over with me to the dark side. Because I think that sometimes what happens is you've... You've revealed to them that maybe they are a bit sensitive to it, but maybe not in a way that was really impacting their quality of life. So it's not to me a no-brainer that they're better off gluten-free because then they have to navigate the rest of their lives gluten-free and that can be difficult. Um, So for someone who's pooping every day and not bloated and feeling okay, sometimes I like to focus on the other areas where we can get them feeling better because what you do is if you take them off of gluten for a month, they don't even really notice the benefit. But then if they reintroduce gluten, like they go to a wedding and they eat the little hors d'oeuvre and then they're like, whoa, wait a second. Where have you been all my life? Yeah, so it's almost like we've made them more sensitive Yep. And now they're like, 
thanks for nothing. You know, I'm just now I'm whether it's that I'm aware or maybe on some level even actually more sensitive. I'm not sure which, um, but I don't think I've done them a surface in that case. So sure. it's always a judgment call. Um, does the circumstance here warrant making big changes to your diet? Yeah, and I think you where you're going with pollen, it's you know, that's one of my favorite quotes, eat food not too mm-hmm. much, mostly plants. And what need. I would add is like sometimes have a donut or a cookie, but <laughs> yeah. just make sure it's like the best one ever. Yeah. And enjoy it and yeah. be mindful and not mindless about it. Yeah. And I think um, for me the harm reduction strategy that I do is when I'm international. Uh, and this is like check your privilege, yo. Like I, you know, I'll, I get to be out of the United States, and that's really a privilege, right? And it's a privilege to have a passport. And you still come back. Yeah, yeah right. That's the crazy part. Um, but when I'm international, I have no dietary restrictions. I eat everything, sure. and that's fun to be that guy and to be at a restaurant. They're like, do you have any dietary restrictions? Like me? Who? No, no, no. I've never. Um, when I'm back in in the U.S., I'm full Portlandia at every conversation with a waiter. Um, but, I like that you have the self awareness. <laughs> Okay. I'm full Portlandia when I cross. <laughs> I'm like, waiter, can you can you crouch down and get close because we're gonna have a long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> but when I'm international, I eat everything, and it's a lot of fun, and my body actually tolerates it really well. Um, and it's kind of trippy that uh, the minute I step foot back on American soil, I don't tolerate those foods. And you could say, is that stress? Is it the vacation mindset that allows me to tolerate it elsewhere? But it's not that simple because I was in Hawaii. I, I got to the end of a seven-month trip around the world and circling the globe, and we made it to Kauai. We had a month oh, nice. in Kauai. Love Kauai. Yeah, it was wonderful. North Shore, do you, where were North you? North Shore, Shore, yeah, it was a Hang good life. Hang out Honolulu Bay. Mm-hmm, that's a five-minute walk from the beach right there, and it was awesome. Did you go to Barracuda? We went to Barracuda three times. Yeah. <laughs> I love that place. <laughs> They're like, oh, you guys again. <laughs> yeah, it was really good. Um, and um, and the farmer's market and ate so much dairy. Sure, have a drink at the, the St. Regis. Uh, we did, yeah, we did. Drink, yeah. yeah. And so privilege upon privilege. But so we, uh, but I was still in vacation mindset and in the most beautiful tropical setting, but one bite of that American gluten or that American dairy. And I, you know, just burst at the seams with symptoms after six months eating these foods around the world with not a single issue. So there is to me something about American agriculture. What's interesting about Kauai, this is like a whole other subject. There's like the GMO war going on there. Like it's a real thing. Monsanto I think owns more than half the island. Yeah. Um, So, so, but let's segue to anxiety. So mm-hmm. we are in the age where it seems like so many people are anxious and, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> looking for, for help there. Like what's one thing yeah, that okay, anyone one who's thing. maybe a little anxious can do to help? One thing. The, if you had to do one thing, can I say two things? Absolutely. Can you can say things. three or four. That's it. Oh, no more than whoa. four. Okay, We're going to okay. stick to you. got the four pillars, so everything's going to be four or under. <laughs> Okay, so if you have to do two things, it would be uh, keep your blood sugar stable. I think so much of anxiety is actually just blood sugar roller coaster dips. And um, if you can keep your blood sugar stable, you've just removed a really frequent stress response that's happening in the body. We all kind of know that hanger feeling that we get around 3 p.m. or for some people it's more like 5 p.m. Um, when you're just like snacky. Drink the coffee that mm -hmm, I'm drinking right now. mm -hmm. Everyone has the different reach, you know, it's candy or it's cookies or it's something in the break room or it's coffee. Um, But probably you're having a blood sugar dip then. And a lot of people, a lot of my patients feel pretty frazzled 
fragile and, and anxious at that time. So kind of go trace back an hour or two before that and have a handful of almonds. Um, do things like a spoonful of coconut oil or a spoonful of ghee. Oh, coconut oil. I love ghee. We, Colleen and I have ghee every morning in our yeah, coffee. Yeah. I took a, this is gross, but this, I was like running out the door on my way here. I was like, I haven't had lunch. And so I took a spoonful of ghee. And <laughs> I love ghee. We do the ghee over the grass fed butter. Mm-hmm. And we do that yeah. in the coffee. We don't do the oil. So coconut yeah. oil is okay. Very controversial. No, it's these pure days. poison. Haven't you heard? <laughs> oh, man. Have I had patients email me? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the tricky thing is we don't. It's so complicated. It, 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 the issue is not that it's saturated fat. It's probably that ancestrally we're not all totally designed sure. to have coconut oil in large quantities, but some of us are. And for other people, it's still a decently healthy fat option. Um, but it, it's certainly not pure poison. But um, So blood sugar, get that blood right. Blood sugar, get that right. You can use the hack of a spoonful of coconut oil or a handful of almonds, or even better is you overhaul your diet and you're eating in a blood sugar-friendly diet. And it's like, you know, dropping all of the sugar and the refined carbohydrates and the alcohol and the things that make us roller coaster throughout the day. The other low-hanging fruit with anxiety is getting off of caffeine. And nobody likes hearing me say that. Um, I don't make a lot of friends with that, but it's important. It's worth doing. I'd say if you're suffering from anxiety, it behooves you to give it a try. Do not, under any circumstances, say like, okay, I'm a three coffee a day drinker, and tomorrow, because that blonde lady told me to get off a of coffee, I'm going to go with zero. <laughs> like, you know, do, you go gradually. I was just drinking a cup a day of green tea, and I even took about a few weeks to get down to zero, having a little bit less each day. I think you know too if like it tries so like i love coffee i can drink a lot of coffee and mm-hmm. go to bed yep. calling my wife it's like one cup i'm done yeah like she will get angry if she drinks coffee after noon she can't sleep i, or can, I can have coffee at 8 p.m at night i'm like oh great i'm gonna take a nap i'm done mm-hmm. go to bed you're a rapid metabolizer right yeah. you're you're 23 and me said you probably like coffee <laughs> and, pretty much <laughs> um my anxious patients um they're 23 and me says you're probably sensitive to caffeine yeah and so i'm sensitive to caffeine and um, I was down to one cup a day of green tea and even getting off of that I've seen benefits with and it's interesting I've had an on again off again love affair with coffee I drank cappuccino every day around the sure. world um, but I, I've learned that getting actually to zero caffeine is worth your while if you're suffering from anxiety just to know is that a factor in your anxiety for a lot of people it is it's an anxiogenic substance for some people. An enzy- what is that? It means anxiety-causing. Yeah. Okay. Genic, like generate. Yeah. And so, um, and so it, it, I think it is worth getting off of it. If I can say like three or four things about anxiety, I would say don't necessarily pathologize it completely. I think that we are in a bit of a funky time and... It's our artists, it's our feelers, it's the people that are really, uh, I think, sensing that, that are feeling most jacked up these days. And so I wouldn't necessarily say you're wrong to feel depressed or anxious right now. I think you're probably really sensing what's off. There's a lot in the world happening. There is. That, that is a little... Uh discomforting to say the least and in many ways it's you know i think we need both kinds of people we need the people that are like feeling every iteration of that and we need the people that are kind of like business as usual nothing to see here and um but i think if you're feeling deeply don't shame yourself for that don't feel guilty about that but there are physiologic strategies you can take to just make yourself a little bit more stable a little Mm -hmm. more resilient what about sleep let's talk about sleep and the role sleep plays and how that can be become a vicious cycle Mm, yeah sleep is so important um there's 
to me, like I, I've, I don't know how many hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe thousand patients I've treated over the years in, in New York City. Very few people are actually sleeping with adequate quantity and quality. And so... What does that mean? What does that mean? Quantity and quality. And quality Is it yeah. like eight hours not turning, not waking up or six out? Like talk because I... Think yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that um, I think I heard this first on Sean Croxton's podcast, Underground Wellness, where someone was talking about sleep as a shoe size. It's like because we say like, well, how much sleep do you need? Seven to nine hours. It's like, OK, cool. I'll take seven because right. then I want more life. Yeah. But I think that we, it's like we have a shoe size and some people your size is an eight. Most of us, it's a bell curve. Most of us, our shoe size is around an eight. Um, some people, their shoe size is truly a nine. Um, and and so I think you kind of have to know yourself it's hard to if you're chronically sleep deprived so it's more like if you think back to the times you were actually rested and you were able to sleep without an alarm in the morning how many hours did your body go before you woke up and it'll vary a little bit with are you sick are you doing a lot of physical exercise but you have a small child yeah well yeah forget about that <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's a, oh that's just the beautiful journey of uh, <laughs> just always being so tired but I think that um, you want to kind of know yourself and then if your shoe size is a nine you have to be honest with yourself and um, some people really need nine hours of sleep it's hard to get and you feel sort of like gypped it's like you want to stay up late with everybody or you want to get up early and, and be productive but if you need that much sleep you need that much sleep and so people do need to prioritize sleep I'm a big fan, we mentioned before, like getting the phone out of the bedroom, that's huge because it works on so many levels. There's the light from it, that blue mm -hmm. spectrum light that disrupts our melatonin secretion. But also it's the last thing you look at before you go to bed, if it's on your bedside table. And that's not the right juju to be bathing our brains in right before we try to have deep restorative sleep. So it's, we associate, our brains associate with reward and stimulation and um, online dating and work stressful work emails and geopolitical news and it's just all of this comes at us and then we're going to try to roll over and close our eyes and fall asleep and, sure. and our nervous system is just like holy whoa there's so much to be worried about right now or excited about or addicted to yeah we do the we try to do the uh turn the phone off no we, we also do really cool so like 65 degrees yeah complete dark yeah yeah you know, we'll watch TV now. That's like a thing we in the Ellie. bedroom. We will. It was something we didn't used to do, and now yeah. we do with Ellie. Yeah. Like as we try to like, but we but we're very mindful about what we watch. Uh -huh. Like now it's it's like fun. Like we'll, we'll try to avoid watching like Narcos. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or like the El Chapo or something that's a little dark or serious. Yeah. Like not before, and then re but like we'll try to like have a. We don't have the time to do like the ninety minute like bath or routine just not <laughs> happening we'll try to like what, what that does for us actually and i am like maybe this is our, this is calling my like telling ourselves this is healthy it helps us like stop thinking about work sure yeah. it's like we watch like something funny or a documentary it just yeah. completely like shuts work off yeah. in a way yeah, yeah oh. I'm not totally opposed to it. I do it myself. I think that, and same idea, I can't handle like these really riveting, intense shows. I will like, have I trouble can't, sleeping. Colleen after. tried to watch. She was like, let's watch The hand, Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I'm like, I can't watch it. I watched the first episode. I'm like, we're about to have a daughter. So this is like a new world where like, I, this is yeah. so, I, I can't watch. This mm. is like... I, 
<laughs> I watched one episode probably a year ago, and I still sleep over it. Yeah. I was like, I can't watch this. This mm-hmm. is too, like I've got enough. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm glad. <laughs> it, yeah, I think we all have like slightly different constitutions, and some people want stimulation. It's yeah. almost like life is too boring. I've never felt that life is too boring, and so I think like I need to be. I think I need to be relaxed in the evening. I don't want something to kind of rev me up and no, make me feel more I, alive. We, I feel we have plenty that enough alive. every yeah. day here. So yeah. something. So you know, we talked about anxiety, sleep. Something. Something we talked a little bit uh, about before before the podcast was supplements. And like mm-hmm. a lot of people look to supplements for sleep and anxiety and other things. And sometimes they some some are great and life changing. And I'll tell my story later at some point and how it changed my life but like mm. there are other people hey you know maybe a little snake oil maybe like efficacy not really there yeah, yeah <laughs> like what's tricky. your view on that yeah. i think as a practitioner in general i just i i take a pretty what feels to me like a feminine approach to practicing medicine there's it's a, it's gentler and there's more energy work that's happening in the room and more like let's try these gentle um, approaches, things that are that place on the graph that's like, this is non-invasive, it's almost guaranteed to be safe, but there's a high potential benefit. That's where I'm most comfortable. Like I could tell a patient to get a squatty potty. I'm never going to hurt somebody by telling them to take a squatty potty home and, and, and start having like a better bowel movement from that. But supplements are when I start to feel just a little bit like, am I playing God in their body? Is it like a little more invasive than I'm comfortable with? Um, but sometimes it really makes the difference. Um, I take supplements myself. I, I have many patients on supplements, but there's what something I feel uneasy space? about. Yeah, so I'm never dogmatic about it. And there's nothing I take like every day without sure. fail. Um, but what I keep around and take here and there, I take cod liver oil. Um, I usually hitch my wagon to Chris Kresser's recommendations. Yeah. Right now I take the Rosita Foods fermented or extra virgin cod liver oil. And uh, I'll keep a probiotic around. Prescriptacist was my go-to, but now it's been recalled. Oh, yeah. I used to take that one, too. Yeah. I know where you got that one I from. No, CK. So <laughs> I think that um, he's changed to one that's thing called Primal Probiotic, something like yeah. that. So I haven't ordered it yet. I take the Thorn one now. Yeah, Thorn, Thorn is a great brand. Yeah, I love Thorn. Um, I keep NAC and acetylcysteine around. Take it yep. sometimes. I take that, too. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason. Supplement twinning. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I keep magnesium glycinate in my bedside yep. table. It's the most bioavailable. Mm-hmm, yeah, I mean, the, the, the hip integrative psychiatrists these days are talking about about like magnesium 3 and 8, is it called? Okay. Um, that might cross the blood-brain barrier more effectively. I haven't really seen the research to Well, magnesium is great switch. for sleep. Like a lot of people will take great that for, for sleep. sleep with like GABA. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, Epsom salt baths, another great magnesium delivery device if you yeah. can do that. Um, I know with kids, we're both taking 90-minute baths every night. Yeah, as part exactly. of our bedtime ritual. I don't think I've ever, we've moved into a new apartment two years ago. I don't. I've never used the bath. Oh, yeah. Do you I even think about fit this. in a conventional bathtub? This bath is big, okay. but I, I could probably fit in it, but I've never been in it. Wow. Yeah, so I, I, do, I do manage to take a bath like once a month and it's always great. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this every night now. And then <laughs> skip to a month later. Um, and then I think I also keep around vitamin D um, sure. with K2, the thorn liquid. Yep. Um, I think that's about it. I'll keep a multivitamin around, the, the designs for health one. Um, but none of this does, do I take every day. And I try to be a little intuitive with it. And I really just try to get my nutrients from food. Right. So if I'm feeling like I need a multi, what I really need is actually a spoonful of chicken liver pate and an egg yolk and more dark green leafy vegetables. Like I sort of know, like, oh, I'm feeling like I need more of this, whether it's I just feel tired or I feel, you know, sometimes you see changes in your tongue, mucous membrane or in your fingernails. And to me, that's a sign of like my body needs more nourishment. Sure. The problem with multis too is like if there's too from my understanding is 
if there's too much of everything in there, then nothing works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, what's the scientific basis for this? Let's think about it. It's like a hundred percent of our day. Like th- that's my understanding. Like yeah. that there's so much in it. Like then you had actually the efficacy is not there. Yeah. I think it's definitely Franken food to the body. I think the body, yeah. like we have just everything changes at such a rapid rate these days, but the body is slower about this. So we just are not programmed to get our nourishment from a little pill with a bunch of dehydrated synthetic vitamins. So I think it can be a useful safety net, especially my patients getting off of meds where I just want to make sure they're really nutritionally repleted and it's not always easy to have good food, especially when you're depressed, especially when you're tired, not motivated. So for them, it's a safety net. I don't think of it as too harmful if it's a good one if it's a food-based one in particular i feel comfortable with that but to me it's not um like i don't want everybody on a a lengthy regimen i think i got really uneasy with the supplement world when i did an uh, institute for functional medicine training that's ifm and i've gone to all of the conventional medicine conferences and there's always like such a pharmaceutical company presence Mm -hmm. there and they're kind of like you know um you know showing their goods and their tables and and then you're at IFM and there's a room, a conference room devoted to supplements. And like something in my stomach turned when I saw that, I was like, oh shit, like yeah. supplements are, are the pharma of functional medicine. Yeah. And some of them are good and I take them and I recommend them to my patients, but um, I just felt this uneasy feeling of like, someone is really trying to make a dollar here. Yeah, it's tough. It's like, you know, some of them are great and life-changing and can really help people and then some of them aren't Mm -hmm. and it's unregulated Mm -hmm. and like it's tough for the average consumer to navigate like you say like the most confusing aisle in whole foods is a supplement aisle like or cvs or insert any place where you buy them because no one knows and then you look at like everyone makes promises like this is the best thing ever and this is where it's sourced from and blah blah blah. you're telling me so much but you're not really telling (laughs) telling me like if it weren't like (laughs) it's like oh it was sourced from this person over there and i'm like what is that mean and it's just like it's interesting and i do believe like i've seen it personally and with other people like not all of them are created equal it's and it's also developing and we're also in this age of personalization yeah where you know between blood testing and 23andme and all these new platforms where you may find like well this supplement's actually not good for you but it's great for you and you're good here and there and it's nuanced and it's like early days of personalization which to me is exciting and like east meets west and all that stuff yeah for sure i'm excited to see where that goes it'll never be how i practice the way i think about it it's almost like um conventional primary care i think fails us in a lot of ways it's like you go in for symptoms of hypothyroidism and they test you know two snapshots of the thyroid not the whole picture and they're kind of like nope you're fine go home bye-bye um maybe you need an ssri and i think that um you know i think it's almost like that uh, quantified self should be mm-hmm. the annual primary care visit you know just get a snapshot get a more comprehensive picture of your nutrient levels of your thyroid function um, but then that's sort of like a once a year good to do thing um, but to me the the way I practice I think will always be that more feminine like to me that feels sure. a little masculine it's like well you know I want to objectively know I want to measure I want to replete and I'm like that's all well and good you know ha- have that be part of, on the menu but then I think a lot of the healing kind of happens in these r- really different formats like if you think about the blue zone areas of the world sure. that, that none of them are taking these uh, 23 sure. meters yeah I've had a long discussion with Dan Buechner on yeah. this very anti and like a lot of the stuff he says like 
And, the thing, and, and there are things that I love about Blue Zones, which he talks about, which have like nothing to do with food. It's like multi-generational yeah, living. It's yeah. purpose. Like these yeah. are things like yeah. shares eyes, big thing, like purpose. Yeah. Best thing you can do for your brain health, yeah. purpose. Yeah. Yeah, it's all true. Yeah. And I think um, even just... Uh, I, I think it's it's kind of uh, illustrative of all these ways that we get it wrong because we think about health in terms of like a gym membership and a supplement and there's a fear quality to the way we think about fear to the way we think sure. about health in the United States like we're being sold fear constantly that was going to be like my next question oh yeah well, like, what are the things? This is sort of like a, a a question. Like, there's so many you know people listening there they're probably doing a lot of the right things but then i was going to ask like what are things they're they're doing that probably aren't good that they don't know about mm -hmm. I, I hate to say it. it's sort of like a little bit of a fear-based question but there's a reality to so I'm like that's my question and then my other question is like when is just like when is it tmi when it when it comes to like mental health and yeah. testing yeah, and totally. what is it just that's a different way of thinking about tmi i never thought about it that way <laughs> which is too much <laughs> yeah, and it's, like it's subscribing like it's i don't want to know and yeah yeah overwhelm yeah totally so yeah that, i think that that's exactly right like the way we think about health from a, a platform of fear in, in in our country and so everything is sort of like oh no what if i have this growing and what if you know i'm i should be taking this medicine but i'm not and i think that um I do like to empower people to remember to feel hopeful like that they are going to be okay and to recognize that there's just like you can be soft with yourself about this you can trust your body and your intuition about this most of us really need to dust off that relationship to our intuition it gets so atrophied in the way we're kind of educated and 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 actualized in our country but I think that um I recently had a piece in Mind Body Green about like too much self-care. Yeah, I love that piece. Yeah, this occurred. To All me. of Ellen's pieces on Mind Body Green are great, as well as her <laughs> classes, which we'll talk about later. But so, um, so the, the self-care thing, I think that it's a lot of well-meaning people, and it's some people that are just like riding the bandwagon. But basically, right now, it feels like to practice healthy self-care, you need to like fill your Amazon cart with certain products. It's yeah, like, that's going to look beautifully on Instagram. Yeah, after. right, right, and and so. I'm, I'm all for telling people like, you know, self-care don't cost a thing. You just, it's like doing less. It's taking a walk outside without multitasking. It's staring out the window while you listen to music that you like. Like it can really be free and it doesn't have to have props. It doesn't have to um, sort of, like if those rituals feel amazing. I love that. Again. Can you just repeat that? I love that. Like self-care is is free yeah self-care is free yeah it really is now nobody selling you self-care tools wants you to know that because they want you to have to buy the thing but you don't have to buy the thing um the things are, are fun but in a way it's almost just like putting up a, a layer of like you will be able to practice self-care once you this right. and like it doesn't have to wait um it really just starts right now in this moment you could finish listening to this podcast and just stare out the window and put on a song you enjoy listening listening to and that's self-care um and so i think it's really just listening to what your body needs in any given moment do you need a rest do you need a break does your mind need a break um do you need to connect and ground with somebody who makes you feel like you're seen and you belong and you're valid no matter what you're going through and so i think that's the real self-care but you can't put it in your cart on amazon <laughs> so we're like so at a loss of sure. it. we like to purchase um and so um yeah i think doing less is often um would be a, a better approach and sure. so I think that's one thing we're getting wrong is too much doing. 
So what do you say to someone listening who, you know, maybe suffering from depression or not them personally, someone they love and what, what do you say to those people? What can they do? Yeah. And I know that's very hard to generalize because yeah. there's all, there's various factors involved in different levels that not all created equal, yeah. all different stages, but. Yeah, so I think that, um, and this has certainly come up a lot in my life, and I, at any almost any party or dinner party I go to, I always get like sidled off by somebody being like, "You're a holistic psychiatrist? Oh my god! I, uh, let me tell you about my issues." <laughs> and I and I don't mind that. Like I actually really love it. Um, it's an honor to be able to be privy to, to someone's struggles, but I think that. Um, I mostly want people to recognize, even though we've all been sold this idea that there's a hereditary component, that there's a genetic component to mental illness, that is true, but it's a vulnerability, it's not a destiny. So we, you might have a, a strong family history of depression or anxiety, there's you know, everyone with severe depression, you think, okay, this is just me, it's who I am, it will always be me. Um, no, it's a it's a genetic vulnerability, and then there's always going to be the environmental influence. And so, um, I think we are at a time when we can start to get smart and strategic about taking control of some of those environmental influences. For me. I have a genetic vulnerability to feel depressed if I eat gluten. And so um, I think I have relatives who didn't know that, and I do know that. So I can not eat gluten and feel okay, and then eat it and be like a really irritable sad sack who feels like pitted out from within. And I'm like, whoa, this is a very, it's really striking. Um, it's the feeling, it reminds me of all of high school and college, basically, <laughs> like after one farmer's market sourdough. And so even the, the Michael Pollan approved kind. So um, I think that you get smart about your environmental influences and you realize it's not your destiny to be depressed. It's just a vulnerability and maybe you have to be a little more careful than somebody else. And I just want people to feel hope. Um, I think there's so much fear and hopelessness around mental health and we've really been sold that. It sells a lot of drugs. It sells a lot of psychiatry appointments. And I think that um, as a psychiatrist, I'm really keen on making myself obsolete. It's like, I'll teach you these skills. We'll, un- you know, we'll sort of unearth some layers of the psycho-spiritual aspects of this. And then, you know, birdie fly out of the nest. You're okay. You're okay. Right. And it's your birthright to be okay. You're resilient. You can be strong. You can be okay. Um, and so I think, you know, I want people to recognize there's reason to feel hopeful, especially the people that feel like they've been chewed up and spit out by the mental health world, like they've tried everything and they're feeling really discouraged, like nothing will work for me. It's just not true. And so everyone, it's going to look a little bit different. What components are going to get them feeling better, but everyone can feel better. I love that. So we've mentioned Pollen a few times, and I haven't read his new book, uh-huh, yeah. but I'm curious, have you, and yeah. what's your take on psychedelics? and Sure, or entheogens, yeah, right. as he would point out. Yeah, um, I read his book, How to Change Your Mind. I loved it. I love him. Um, Michael Pollan, if you're listening, like I would love for you to just come over to my house. <laughs> I'll cook you food that's a lot worse than the food you cook. <laughs> but um, in my practice, I'm, I'm not a shaman. I'm not like taking people through an ayahuasca retreat. But I certainly have patients who, if it feels like the right setting, there's decent research showing psilocybin, for example, as having um, pretty good impact on mood. 
And even with four months, six month follow up, you have someone who's really less depressed six months later. So this is better than our conventional standard of care. Right. Um, it's not for everyone. I think Michael Pollan does a really good job of showing some people's minds have too much structure. Some people's minds have too much chaos. Yeah. Don't take the chaotically minded person and say like, go trip your balls off because um, you're not gonna be doing them a service. And I think that that actually can be really destabilizing. But for someone with a lot of structure, someone with kind of rigid or um, like grooves in their brain, these are the thought patterns. I'm always gonna be dwelling on the negative or I'm always gonna be sort of stuck into certain OCD rituals and checking and fears. I think it can be really helpful to have an antheogenic experience. Um, I am a strong advocate that you do this in a safe setting. You want to know, kind of like you really want to yeah. bring a lot of intention to how you would approach this. But, um, but basically, it can really shake things up, and it can give people the gift of um, just sort of you open your eyes in your morning and you realize like, oh, you're in a state of awe of what it is to be alive. There's a gratitude that goes with that. You realize sure. like, this is actually pretty cool that I'm in this flesh body having this experience of a human body on the earth. And I think that, um, and it's a different insight that everyone's going to get. But I think a lot of my patients who have gone through that process, it's not like we've snapped our fingers and cured them overnight, but they do then hold on to a sense of gratitude and awe. Uh, that I think is very powerful in their journey out of right. depression. Yeah, that's a, it's a tough, I haven't read the book, so I want to make that clear, but mm -hmm. it's a tough one for me personally, like having been an irresponsible teenager and a bad college trip. student, a little bit, like good and bad, but I've also done every, without going into them, done everything, and I ran with a group of friends who did, mm -hmm. and I saw some people be fine and then i saw some people fall apart totally. i saw one person like it developed like into mental illness and mm -hmm. eventually suicide like and i've yeah. so i've seen and it goes back to like genetics and how you're wired but i've seen both sides of it where some people like fine whatever all yeah. fun and then other people like a couple like someone die and, and people yeah. like completely like fall apart over the course of time um yeah. but it's a t it's yeah, it goes back to like personalization and what works for you and not for me. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, and I personally, I always go back to like, it's like getting outside of your, it, it's, it's look, it's all these things are nuanced, but like this idea of like everything is within and it's like getting outside of yourself to go within, mm -hmm. which I sort mm -hmm. of like yeah. struggle with a little bit. Yeah, uh, you don't need the tool. Right. Yeah, you, you, you can it. you can trip just like lying on your bed with your hands in your stomach. Yeah, just, yeah like just going, going to Kundalini. <laughs> oh yeah, well, that is like tripping. Actually, it is. Yeah. It is. That's where there's like yeah. a yeah. And um, the holotropic breathing for sure. Yes. Um, but yeah, I think you're, you're right. And is it Ramdas who's like, um, you know, acid is a conversation with God, but when the conversation is over, hang up the phone. And you can't, and I could be misquoting this slash saying it's the wrong person. I'm not sure. We'll fact check this later. But I think, oh, who facts checks these days anyway? <laughs> We're not in the era of facts. So I think that. Um, we are my buddy Green. Ramdas or somebody <laughs> said something like this. I love um, that. We'll share it on Instagram. Ramdas or somebody. <laughs> um, but I think that that is the tricky thing is that, you know, and I even think in high school, college, we might be too young. Even well, to your really brains know. are developing too. Like yeah. I've read studies, yeah, like teenagers, a, like brains are developing, like you destroy your, yeah. Totally. You only, you kind of want to be building structure. Yeah. And then later when you're too structured, that might be the time to blast things open once. You know, I think it's right. more like a once a decade kind of an experience where you set some intention for this decade and remind yourself. It's not like, like Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters yeah. running around on the acid tests. And, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I think um, yeah, it's not to be approached lightly, but I think it can have, um, it can be, uh, there's utility right. in it.
So what do you think the future of wellness and psychiatry is? You know, we're in 2018. Like what, what is a year from now, three years from yeah. now? Like where do you, where do you okay, see so things going? I think we're at the precipice where like there's a tipping point coming in terms of people recognizing what were we thinking, thinking that we all had to be on psychiatric medications. Um, to me, that it, to me, it's like the Dave Matthews "Remember Two Things" cover. It's like you know, you see, you finally see the peace sign. It's like a magic eye poster, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. And I feel like I've seen this now. It's like, oh, you know, it's not just that we're all born with a Prozac deficiency disorder. It's that um, here are the 15 different things that get out of balance in people's bodies identify them, get them into balance, and someone doesn't have to be depressed anymore. And to me now it feels so obvious and so empowering and beautiful that like all these people that are running around feeling like they're destined to be depressed, they're relying on medication, they're relying on their doctors, they don't need to be. Um, and I think that conventional medicine, there's a lot of inertia there, there's a lot of well-meaning people being fed a kind of systemically biased education. Um, so that'll move slowly. They'll always, I think, be hesitant to to kind of come around to this idea, but the patients, the the lay people, the people suffering, um, I think that like it's a tidal wave. I think it's already building the volume of the wave, and it's just about to hit. And I think that so many people are waking up to this and realizing, wait, there's got to be a better way. And so I think that we're minutes from that. Um, and I, I think it's it's really exciting because to me, like this is just so meaningful. It's just so important. This is like my Moana calling, <laughs> taking me beyond the reef. Like, um, there's a lot of people really suffering and feeling really stuck, and it doesn't have to be so. I love it. So we always close with the the last uh, couple questions. What keeps you up at night? And what has you excited in the morning? Okay, so um, I'm going to answer the first one, not in the spirit of the question. Which is, sure. Um, I, what keeps me up at night is uh, spending time with friends, and I think it's the right decision. So I'm always going to be spouting, like, we all need to go to bed earlier, we need to prioritize sleep, and asterisk, except when there's a life-affirming social connection happening, and then stay up till four, you know, like, that... I think takes the precedence over sleep and you um, I think that if you have an opportunity to connect with people that you love stay up late and I do it all the time and I hate myself in the morning for it but it's 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 actually what my life is about and um, and I think that the trouble is right now we're we're staying up for Instagram and things that we just get sucked into or Netflix in bed but we're it's that's not what life is actually that's not the most life-affirming thing we can do with our time. So in that case, go to bed by 10, prioritize sleep. But if there's a social connection to be had, take it. And that's what keeps me up at night, like all too often. Love that. Um, and excited in the morning. Excited in the morning. Excited is not the right word, but there's a two-year-old that like literally opens my eyelids. <laughs> she pulls it open and says, mama, mama. And then this morning she said, um, like I yawned and she said, wait, yawn again. I want to feel your yawn. And she feel puts her hand yawn. in my mouth while I yawn. <laughs> so I think um, that's like a cliche that any parent would say is that's what wakes me up in the morning. But I think what really makes me want to jump out of bed um, nothing. I'm not a morning person, but what does make me excited about starting my day is, um, like I said, like the Moana calling. I think that this wasn't clear to me throughout college, med school, even residency. It was only towards the end of residency that I realized um, I have a unique role here. I have a contribution to make. And um, so that's that's the work I do. And I feel incredible fulfillment and meaning in that. And it, it just like all day, every day in all these different permutations, I'm just trying to spread this gospel of 
if you're suffering from mental illness, try these things, ideally first. It's sure. a lot easier to get yourself into balance before you've ever even been exposed to medications. But if you've been exposed to medications, there are things you can do to get your body in balance. But I just want more people to recognize um, it's under their control. There's things they can do. They don't have to feel this way. I love that. So last question, if you could go back and give yourself advice when you were first starting med school, what advice would that be? Oh, um, I think in general, every time you look backwards, you actually want to reassure yourself, you're going to be okay. So I think there's always that feeling of like, oh no, you know, this breakup or oh no, I didn't get into this, whatever. And you think like these are so life altering and they are, but you're ultimately okay. And you're just kind of on this ride. Um, I think the more I've learned to trust and surrender into where it seems like the current is taking me, it's always ends up kind of beautiful. And, and sometimes it's really tragic and really difficult, but it's still very much uniquely my path. And I don't even resist it anymore. It's like when something that I think is not what I want, something doesn't go my way, I don't even think anymore in those terms. I'm just like, well, here's where I'm going. And so I think surrendering, trusting, and then just reminding yourself constantly, you're going to be okay. Even yeah. when you're not okay, you're still ultimately going to be okay. I love that. Well, check out all of what Ellen has at Mind Body Green. She's got a number of fantastic articles, not to mention uh, a couple of really amazing classes on depression, anxiety, stress, uh, really life-changing classes uh, that, that people love here and, and check them out. And uh, thank you so much for all that you do and for being here. Cool. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, guys. Thanks.